I pretty much always wanted to be a lawyer from the time that I was a little kid. I think I must have been a very argumentative kid because people would always say to me, you have a lot of opinions, you should be a lawyer. And I just kind of accepted that as my identity. It, it was um, always kind of a dream of mine to argue at the Supreme Court. It, it, um, it, it seemed like a, a, a really exciting thing, but I, I, in, until last year, I had no idea whether that was a realistic goal or not. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. My name is Stephanie Todi. I'm 39 years old, and I am a reproductive rights attorney. I got a fellowship at the Center for Reproductive Rights back in 2006. I started there just before the Supreme Court heard Gonzalez v. Carhartt. Gonzalez v. Carhartt banned a method of second trimester abortion that is known commonly but incorrectly as partial birth abortion. You see, Partial birth abortion is rhetoric meant to evoke negative emotions, but it is not a scientific term, nor does it describe a medical procedure. Yet all of the legislation in the United States against the procedure refer to it this way, with little to no mention of it by its correct medical terminology, intact dilation and extraction. Before they were banned, intact DNEs made up less than 1% of all abortions performed in the United States. They were typically used when a fetus was diagnosed with a severe congenital abnormality, as the intact extraction allowed for better examination of the remains. Sometimes the person miscarrying or having an abortion would choose an intact DNA so they could see the fetus and have some closure, which could help with the grieving process. That was kind of my entree into the the world of reproductive rights and justice. Um, and so oral argument happened in that case uh, just a few months after I started at the Center for Reproductive Rights. I was really eager to hear the argument. My new boss was arguing the case. Um, and she did a great job. But because I was such a junior attorney, I wasn't eligible for admission to the Supreme Court bar, which meant that I had to camp out overnight in order to get a seat in the courtroom. Um, And I remember it still very vividly. I went down with a bunch of the other um, junior attorneys and the paralegals, um, and it was pouring rain. It was in November, so it was kind of cold and rainy, and we tried to pitch a tent, but the marshals came and confiscated our tent because um, apparently you're not allowed to do that outside the Supreme Court and had a sleeping bag, and it just got drenched, and I, I ended up just throwing it away. Um, but it was, it was pretty miserable, and by the next morning, um, I was exhausted and soaking wet and, and looked a mess, but... Um, Somebody, one of my colleagues came and, and brought me a suit and um, I was able to, to change in the, um, in the restroom and look presentable and I got a seat um, in just about the last row of the courtroom, but I made it in and I was so excited. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, this courtroom is so big, but the Supreme Court um, is not big at all. I think it was, it was just more a reflection on sort of how, how small and, and new I felt. Um, in that environment. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the case was very well argued, but unfortunately it was, uh, it was a bad decision. And basically, you know, the movement lawyer spent the next decade trying to right the ship. 
Stephanie worked her way up at the Center for Reproductive Rights for nearly a decade. Um, I, I worked on dozens of cases at the center, uh, some successful. I, I also had some, some really heartbreaking defeats. By 2011, the number of abortion restrictions passed by states had skyrocketed, and the trend continued into 2012. Then, in 2013, Texas passed the sweeping anti-choice bill, HB2. It contained multiple restrictions under the same law, including a 20-week abortion ban, admitting privilege requirements, ambulatory surgical center requirements, reporting requirements, and restrictions on medication abortions. Stephanie and her team had been tracking the bill and were ready to challenge it immediately. We had been tracking HB2 um, from as, as soon as it was introduced. And during that legislative session, um, before there was HB2, there were a number of independent bills that had been introduced that had all the components of HB2, and they're, they're called different things. Uh, all of the individual bills had failed during the legislative session, and we thought we dodged a bullet, but then the governor called a special session. Um, it was reintroduced um, and ultimately defeated by Senator Wendy Davis's now famous filibuster, but then the governor called another special session and kind of made it clear that he was going to keep calling special sessions until uh, this bill was enacted. And, and so finally it was. It became enacted as HB2. Um, and as, as, as soon as it passed, we knew we would have to challenge it because of the devastating impact it was going to have on abortion care access in Texas. But we weren't sure at the outset whether we would be successful or not. Whole Woman's Health uh, stepped up and uh, indicated that it, it would like to serve as lead plaintiff in the case. Uh, it's, a, it's a burdensome role to take on, but they were very eager to do it. Um, you know, Amy Hagstrom Miller and her team at Whole Women's Health had operated in Texas for, for a long time. Uh, and I think they had just had enough of all of these restrictive laws and, and year after year, the state layering some new burden onto their patients. Um, so they, they said, we, we absolutely want to challenge this. There was an initial lawsuit to HB2 that focused on the admitting privileges requirement and some restrictions on medication abortion. Um, that suit was successful at the trial court level, um, and it was brought before any of these requirements took effect. The trial court blocked them from taking effect, but then its decision was reversed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which said that um, it wasn't convinced that the laws would actually have a harmful impact on abortion access. Once that admitting privileges requirement took effect, more than half of the clinics in the state were forced to close. After so many of the clinics had closed as a result of the admitting privileges requirement, we were then facing um, the ambulatory surgery center requirement, which was set to, to take effect. These provisions had staggered effective dates, so the admitting privileges requirement took took effect first, and then the ASC requirement, you know, almost a year later was scheduled to take effect. And we knew once that one took effect, it would close almost all of the remaining clinics, leaving only a handful um, for the second largest state in the country. Um, so we knew that, that we would have to file another suit 
Um, this was a really intensive uh, litigation. Almost every stage of the proceeding, not almost, every stage of the proceeding had an expedited schedule. So we filed the case in April and it went to trial in August. Um, and in, in between, we did extensive discovery. We took and defended over three dozen depositions. Um, it was a really intensive, grueling schedule. I spent the whole summer on the road, driving around Texas, flying to California, any place that we had witnesses or the state had witnesses. It was an incredibly moving experience um, working on this case and um, meeting with and, and, and talking with all of the, the people who would be affected by these laws. We've covered HB2 quite a bit on this show. If you remember back to season one, Candace and Valerie both had to travel out of state to get abortions because of the restrictions put in place by this law. But perhaps the people most hurt by it were those living in the Rio Grande Valley. For people not familiar with Texas geography, the Rio Grande Valley is along Texas's southern border with Mexico. It's a very rural region. Um, there's not a lot of infrastructure, you know, dirt roads and, um, and that kind of thing. There's not great transportation down there, very little public transportation. Um, it's isolated from other parts of Texas. And people who live in that community face a lot of barriers to accessing health care. And these, um, the laws that we were challenging, rather than, than trying to make the situation better for people in that community, but rather than giving them more options and, and improving their access, it was going to make things much worse. And the abortion restrictions in HB2 were layered on top of um, an, another set of restrictions uh, which had been uh, put in place in the prior legislative session that uh, reduced access to family planning services um, in that community and in other parts of the state. So, um, you know, so, so people there were, were uh, you know, just facing a ton of obstacles. Um, but these were women who, you know, although the the state was, um, you know, trying to limit their rights and, and take away their, their access to these services. Um, you know, these, these women were not victims. You know, they were, they were, they were powerful and, um, you know, they, they really wanted to be able to, you know, speak up and speak for themselves and, and, and tell their stories. Stephanie and her team were working exclusively on Holman's Health versus Hellerstedt with little work-life balance. But it was paying off. It seemed like the case was going to make it all the way to the Supreme Court. I remember the the court granted cert on um, a Friday in November, and it was Friday the 13th. And I got a call from the clerk's office of the Supreme Court to, um, to let me know that the court was going to take the case. And I remember the clerk said, so I have some good news and I have some bad news. And I was like, you know, I was on such like pins and needles. I'm like, oh, God, what's this? You know, she's like, the good news is, you know, the court has granted your petition for certiorari. And I'm like, that's great. And she's like, the bad news is they've given you an expedited schedule. And I was like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. And she's like, so your, you know, your brief is going to be due December 28th, you know, in the court because it's expedited. It won't uh, entertain any 
applications for an extension. I'm like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. You know, and then I, I hung up and I was so excited. I'm like, they granted cert, you know, and everybody is, is, is cheering and, you know, we're letting the clients know. And then it starts to sink in that like, oh, this brief is due December 28th. That's like three days after Christmas. It's like, first of all, it's, it's only next month. And, um, okay, so, you know, so everyone will just celebrate the holidays here in the office. It'll be fine. We'll get a menorah. We'll get a tree. Well, it, you know, it'll be, it'll be great. Um, and so we, you know, everyone was, was really great. And, um, you know, when we all worked together, you know, through, um, you know, through Thanksgiving and, and the winter holidays and we, we got our briefs in, but it was, um, it was a really exciting day when the court said it would take the case and, um, our clients and our, our witnesses in Texas were especially excited and that's really you know I mean that's that's what it's all about right it's it's um it's about the the impact that, that this work is going to have on people who are affected by these laws although the supreme court is now more diverse than it's ever been the elite group of lawyers who argue in front of it are not according to a 2014 Reuters investigation of the 66 top lawyers who frequently argued in front of the supreme court in the last decade only eight were women, and Stephanie said that it seemed as though her gender led the opposing counsel to underestimate and disrespect her at times. There were definitely times when the lawyers representing the state uh, did not uh, always take me seriously or did not um, uh, treat me as lead attorney for the plaintiffs. Um, I think in, 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 in part because I'm a woman, um, and I had a co-counsel who, you know, was male and was from a big law firm, you know, was a partner at the, at the law firm. Um, and, uh, throughout the trial court proceedings, opposing counsel would always reach out to him whenever they had a question or, or needed a decision, um, you know, from, from, from important matters to very mundane things, like can we get a two-day extension on our responses to whatever, you know, those are typically inquiries that you would address, you know, to the lead counsel, um, and they would always uh, address those inquiries to my co-counsel, and he would always refer them to me, but, you know, um, uh, that that kind of thing happens, and um, I I uh, guess being a woman um, in this field, you know, I'm I'm sensitive to it and I'm aware of it, but uh, it doesn't it it doesn't affect the way that I conduct myself. For the months leading up to the trial date, Stephanie spent almost every waking hour focusing on the Supreme Court and her upcoming case. Um, I listened to. Uh, dozens of uh, prior Supreme Court cases. So the audio from all Supreme Court arguments is is archived and available online. And so I, I downloaded it all and listened to them like they were podcasts. So I would listen to this audio. Um, I mean, we were working all the time trying to write the brief. So I would listen to the audio like when I was on the subway or when I was at the gym or when I was at the grocery store. Um, so it was it was also kind of intense because it was just SCOTUS, you know, all the time. Like whenever I was awake, it was, it was either writing briefs or listening to audio. But um, it did really help uh, help me kind of get prepared 
for the experience and to kind of develop a comfort level with being in the courtroom, you know, because listening to all of those prior arguments kind of made me feel like I was there. Um, And so kind of just getting to feel, you know, very familiar with the court kind of helped with the nerves. But still, you know, when I when I showed up on the day um, for the whole women's health argument, I mean, I was very nervous. So the Supreme Court usually hears its first argument at 9 a.m., Um, There can be as many as as four arguments in a day, so sometimes there's two before lunch and two after. But on this day, uh, the whole women's health case was the only argument that was set. So it was set for 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, So, you know, I think I I got to the courthouse around 8 a.m., and was astonished to see the size of the crowd that was already there. I mean, there were thousands of people in front of the courthouse. Most of them um, came to show their support for reproductive rights and justice. But it was just amazing to see, you know, all of the people and the banners and, and then to, you know, kind of, you know, walk through all those people to, to find my way into the courthouse. Um, and then there's a lot of procedural things you need to do, you know, so you show up and you're like super nervous, but they're like, you know, you have to stand on this line and then you have to sign this form and then you have to check in over there, you know, so then it's kind of focused on just doing all the logistical things, you know, that needed to be done. And then finally somebody shows you into the courtroom and you're like, oh, wow, this is for real. Like, this is really going to happen today. We'll hear argument this morning in case 15274, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Ms. Toti? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Texas requirements undermine the careful balance struck in Casey between states' legitimate interests in regulating abortion and women's fundamental liberty to make personal decisions about their pregnancies. Um, Supreme Court arguments typically last an hour. Each side has 30 minutes. I was sharing my side with the U.S. Solicitor General. Um, So that's the the person who argues in the Supreme Court on behalf of the federal government. So in this case, um, it was still the Obama administration in the White House and uh, Don Verrilli was the Solicitor General. So I had 20 minutes for argument and he had 10. We were splitting the, the 30 minutes for the plaintiffs. Um, but once I got up there and, and started arguing, as I was coming to the, the end of my time, um, I told the court that I wanted to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, which is pretty standard. Um, and as I, I, I started to walk back to my seat, Justice Ginsburg says, excuse me, excuse me. And I thought, oh, Justice Ginsburg has another question. I better go back to the podium. You know, so I, I, I walked back. We have absorbed so much of your time with the threshold question. Perhaps you can, um, can she have some time to address the merits? Why don't, why don't you take an extra five minutes, and we'll be sure to afford you rebuttal time after that. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. That was um, incredibly exciting um, that, that, that Justice Ginsburg got me some more time. Um, and so the Chief Justice said yes, and then the argument continued, and, and the, the Chief Justice Roberts had said I could have another five minutes. Then when the, the Texas attorney came up to argue, you know, the court gave him more time so it would be balanced. And so the argument went for almost an hour and a half that day. 
It would have made them generally applicable. All outpatient surgical providers would have to have admitting privileges or practice in an ASC, but that's not the case. Texas law expressly authorizes other surgical procedures, including those performed under general anesthesia, which early abortion is not, to be performed in a physician's office. Um, And even other uh, physicians that operate at an ASC aren't required to have admitting privileges. The facility is merely required to have a transfer agreement. So these regulations target one of the safest procedures that a patient can have in an outpatient setting for the most onerous regulations. Thank you, counsel. Case is submitted. It was an, an amazing experience to be arguing at the Supreme Court in general, and it was especially great to be able to, to look up at the bench and to see so many strong female justices up there. Those justices had overcome so many obstacles in their own careers to, to make it to that position, and it, it really is an inspiring. Um, and it was amazing to... Um, uh, j- just to be there in that setting. And, um, you know, it's the first time in our history when there's been so many women on that bench. Um, so it was great to be part of that. Um, but coming out of the courtroom, uh, coming out of the courthouse after the argument, um, and, you know, you, you, you enter the courthouse on the ground level, but then you exit at the top of the stairs and you walk down the stairs and it's very dramatic. Um, and as I came out, I could see this sea of people, um, and they started chanting my name, and it was such a, a surreal experience, really. Um, I mean, it was just, like, overwhelmed with emotion. It was, it was amazing. In June of 2016, the Supreme Court ruled 5-3 to three in favor of Whole Woman's Health saying that Texas cannot place restrictions on abortion care that create an undue burden for the people seeking abortions. Soon after, Stephanie left the Center for Reproductive Rights to assemble her own team of lawyers who could fill in the gaps in the current reproductive rights legal landscape. They're called The Lawyering Project, and they launched this fall. Choiceless is produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio with editorial oversight by Mark Fletty, our director of multimedia and executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team, for getting the word out about Choiceless. For the next two weeks, I'll be working with guest producer Patrice Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and senior fellow at the nonprofit Moms Rising on stories about birth justice in the age of Trump. So be sure to check that out. Thanks for listening.